Welcome into The Looking Glass, the podcast for speculative poets and poetry lovers alike. Join me, Jasmine Arch, on a journey into a world where nothing is what you expect it to be. Together with speculative poets from across the world and from all levels of experience, we'll be exploring the magic behind this fascinating genre and hopefully have a few laughs along the way. Okay, so before we start, I've got like a little disclaimer, mean meaning I have a nine-week-old puppy in the house and a one-year-old who still thinks she is a puppy. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be dog cameos. They're probably, you can hear them while I'm talking right now. I usually try to clean up recordings as much as I can, but I can't always get it all out. So yeah, apologies ahead of time because I know it's going to be necessary. Um, with that said, Let's get on to today's conversation. Brittany Hawes's speculative poetry has appeared in Asimov Science Fiction, Kaleidotrope and many other places, and their Spanish to English first translations can be read in the common tongue, Starline and elsewhere. This year, they're chairing the annual speculative poetry contest put on by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association, which opens to submissions in June. Brittany isn't from the UK, but that's where they currently live. Welcome, Brittany, into the Looking Glass. Thank you very much. So what's been going on in your poetic life lately other than the speculative poetry contest? Well, so the speculative poetry contest actually hasn't uh, kicked off yet. So I've not been doing too much with that of yet. I'm I'm glad that we're mentioning it on the podcast because that'll help get the word out before uh, subs do start coming in in June, hopefully. Um, Lately, let's see, poetry-wise, I'm afraid it's been rather quiet. I guess that's not what you want to hear on a poetry podcast, <laughs> but I've I've been concentrating on uh, writing up my thesis for this uh, doctorate degree I'm working on right now, so that's kind of taken over everything at the moment. Um, but I continued to work on a couple of different poetry collections that I've had in the works for mm-hmm. a very long time now. Um, one of them is a collection of short form poetry that's sci-fi and fantasy. So like uh, sci-fi ku and tanka and kyoka and that sort of thing. And uh, the other one is a collection of mostly sonnets that are based on fairy tales. So those those are still in the works. And um, I've also uh, been working on a, well, an anthology of poetry from South America from around the year 1850 to 1950. Um, That's also speculative poetry. I've been translating poems from uh, Spanish and Portuguese and French mainly uh, for for that, just to sort of showcase what was going on in sci-fi and fantasy poetry at that time in South America, because I I think that's something that a lot of English language readers might not be too aware of, (laughs) that this this even, you know, exists in a big way, but there's quite a bit of it out there. But that, that's going to take a very long time for me to get done. So uh, I, I wouldn't expect that to hit, you know, bookstore shelves until, I don't know, maybe five years down the line. It's a, it's a very big project. <laughs> so I'm almost wondering whether I should bring that up here, actually. Well, don't want to get anybody excited too prematurely. Well, no, but it's a fascinating project. So I'm happy to hear about it for sure. Um, and... Well, it's not like I'm I'm chomping at the at the bit to get it in my hands, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. 
Yeah, actually, this is this is the one I think I mentioned to you a while back because, of course, there is some Dutch language poetry that、mm. I really would like to get included in there. But I'm completely out of my depth when it comes to Dutch. I don't I don't speak or read Dutch at all, so、uh, that's sort of a, a hole there. I'm, I'm actually, I guess maybe this would be a good opportunity to say, you know, anybody who、uh, happens to work with、uh, Dutch translation to English, you know, when it comes to To poetry, especially, and even more specifically, speculative poetry. If they'd be interested in working on this project in any in any way, keeping in mind that it'll take a very very long time before it it comes to、uh, its final form, I'd like to hear from them. Well, they definitely should.、Um, I think I already mentioned I have zero experience as a translator, but if I can be of help,、um, do let me know.、Um, availability is. Not consistent throughout the year, but since you're not like on a one month deadline, we can work something out. But definitely, other listeners should totally get in touch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd definitely love to have you, regardless of of level of experience with translation. I'd definitely love to have you on board because you are an experienced poet, and you read a lot of work both in. In English and in Dutch, and I think that's you know the basic building blocks you need to get started there. And I think that you would do a better job of translating Dutch poetry than I would, in that I have no、uh, experience with Dutch, as I was saying. And you are a native speaker, so no, definitely, if you yourself are are you know interested in looking into this more, I'd definitely love to have you、uh, help me out with this. Right. Well, we'll talk about this some more after the recording. In that case. Um, but so you're a poetry translator as well as a poet,、um, as we clearly already mentioned. But do you translate prose as well, or do you stick to poetry only or mostly?、Um, well, all the things that I've had published in journals、uh, so far has been poetry, but that's been all that I've been submitting. I, I have translated some short stories. Nothing longer than a few pages, really. I've been translating some very short stories because I would like to put together a collection of、uh, short stories in translation from Eastern Bolivia, from the the part of Bolivia where I grew up, down the line at some point as well. I have all these, <laughs> I have all these works in progress, and nothing, nothing concrete to actually show you yet or or link to in the. Description for this podcast episode, but yeah, no, I have I have been working on it, but、um, no, nothing that anyone can read yet at the moment. I am I am very interested in、uh, translation of prose fiction as well as poetry, though. Yeah, cool.、Um, so, from which language or languages? Languages you already mentioned multiple. From which languages do you translate? Do you always translate into English, or do you also work the other way around? Yeah, I think I, I might have made it sound like I'm a little more prolific and proficient in these other languages, other than Spanish. I mean,、uh, than I than I really am. French and Portuguese, as I did mention, I have been working on. I've been trying to、uh, get better at translating these languages、um, when it comes to poetry, in order to include that in the in the anthology of South America, because you really can't have an anthology that claims to cover. South America, without you know, looking at Portuguese, you know, you can't just leave Brazil off. Yeah, and French, you know, up up in the north, 
there's there's French, uh, but also surprisingly, um, some people in in Uruguay, or maybe maybe not surprisingly for everyone, but it, it kind of surprised me how big of a, a French literary presence there was in Uruguay in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, so yeah, French has a pretty big presence in South America as well. So since these are Romance languages and rather closely related to Spanish, uh, which I grew up speaking as a second language, but as a, as a second language that I used every day. These ones I've been able to sort of slowly ease into, uh, and I have been working on translating those, but those also are not, those translations of French and Portuguese are not something I've shopped around anywhere yet. Uh, and I would like to get, you know, the eyes of some people who, who are native speakers of French and Portuguese uh, on my attempts, you know, before I send them anywhere with more confidence. So I'm probably going to show those to a few friends <laughs> before I do anything more with them. Mm. But yeah, the only other languages when it comes to poetry uh, that I've really worked with would be um, Guarani. I, I know that you know about Guarani because you brought up you brought up Guarani uh, legends and myths and things in, in your uh, mythsterhood of the... In the mythsterhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The podcast with the incredibly long name. <laughs> um, it's called The Mythsterhood of the Travelling Tales. And what we basically did is travel across the world. And in season one, we examined like dragon and serpent mythology from, from everywhere. And we took specific regions and spent an entire episode on them. And yeah, it... um. In hindsight, we were we should have gone with a simpler name. Oh, I mean, I I, en <laughs> it's too late I, I enjoyed the name. I just, you know, to my shame, I just <laughs> trip tripped over it right now. But yeah, mixed <laughs> is <laughs> quite a fun. Well, we we totally don't do that ourselves. <clears throat> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I sort of cherry picked which of the episodes of that podcast I've listened to so far, and uh, mm. the ones that dealt with. Um, South American mythologies and stories and things that those were the ones that really caught my attention. So I, I, I looked at those before anything else. But uh, yeah, you did you did address some um, Guarani culture uh, in in a couple of those episodes. So yeah, yeah, the the poems in Guarani that I've been working on translating, it, it's not just straight from Guarani because um, it's a specific it's a specific collection of poems by uh, an author from southern Bolivia who speaks Bolivian Guarani specifically, so not, not Paraguayan Guarani, mm -hmm. but Bolivian Guarani, which is a rather different uh, language. And um, he translated his own poems into Spanish, and he has this bilingual collection that I've been working on translating into uh, English. But it is kind of interesting to see how, even though the author of the poems is the one who translated them to Spanish. Mm -hmm. There are some differences between, you know, the two texts that even somebody who has <laughs> very little competence in Guarani, I have to say, like, I've, I've been trying to learn, you know, I've been, I've been trying to get a little better at it over the last few years, but I'm, I would not say I'm anywhere near it. Uh, business level competence or however you know you normally rank these <laughs> these kinds of mm -hmm. uh, levels of fluency but um even even at my level you know you could see that he had made the choice to sort of change things a little bit between the guarani and the spanish texts and so i'm trying to uh 
reference both of these both of these versions in the English version. <laughs> so it's winding up a little. It's winding up kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Trying to straddle that line between the Guarani and the Spanish texts. Yeah. But that's also once again another thing I'm mentioning that's not published. It's not out there in the world yet. But I've been working on it. Yeah. Well, do keep us posted. Yeah, I I I will do that. Yeah, I'll let you know when it's out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because well, you already mentioned the misterhood, but doing what we did, we we spent like a year and a half, I think, looking at all these different cultures across the world, and it has been so it's been such an enrichment to look because we only picked like that one aspect of culture but we discovered so many things we never expected and it's it's given me this sort of complete fascination with with work from those cultures um because i mean we looked at it through our own lens um and try in also trying to be aware of our own lens and our own outlook, um, but there's still always going to be that filter between the source material and and the person talking about it. And I am absolutely excited to like find work from like indigenous authors and poets from the cultures we we visited ourselves. So definitely interested. Oh yeah, and also with this book in particular uh that I've been talking about um by Elias Caure, that's the name of the guy Elias mm. Caure. That was my kind of regional accent coming through there. <laughs> Elias Caure is his name. Um his poetry it's mostly I guess what you would call literary, you know, by normal mm. definitions of it, but he does have some things that are very much um framed as sort of speculative uh, that call on these figures from the local culture and uh, from yeah. the local stories, which, you know, it's always it's always a little bit of a fine line. It's a little hard to say what's speculative and what's not, as, you know, has been discussed over and over again with lots of people. But there are some that he himself sort of frames as a speculative sort of mm. fantasy poem that incorporates elements from this culture. So I think for people who are specifically interested in yeah. uh, sci-fi and fantasy poetry too, there's there's uh, something of interest there for uh, people coming from whatever background, from whatever culture <laughs> uh, in, in this collection too. So yeah, I will definitely let you know when it's out. And I, I would like more people to read Elias Caure's work because I think no matter what genre he was writing and even just putting anything out there that's coming from this Bolivian Guarani background, that that's really something that hasn't been published a great deal in writing. There are publications, but yeah, not a whole lot. So I, I think that this is really great that he's doing this and a few other authors right now are starting to write more in, in Bolivian Guarani and mm -hmm. to write about uh, things that are particular to their own culture, to their own part of the world. And so I think that this is going to be a really great addition to what's available to people who speak English once once I finally get once I finally get done with it uh, I've I've been leaving him kind of hanging for a while there's a lot of things happening in this year and last that I've slowed it down mm. but yeah I do think it's a worthwhile project and I'm glad that he wanted me to uh participate in this yeah absolutely I think so many of us would benefit from from like just a little more exposure to different cultures and the different outlooks um, 
on the world and life that that brings. So totally. Um, I'm glad you got to do that too, because that means I will get to read it at some point. So how did you get started in the field of translation? Uh, well, for me, as um, I, I guess, I guess I can say professional translator now. I, I felt hesitant in saying that because I haven't published, you know, collections of translated poetry and things. But no, I do have I do have some translations out there. So I guess that's by definition professional translation. I, I uh, only rather recently started um, submitting translations of poetry to journals. And I guess when that switch kind of flipped for me was mm, 2018, I had translated some some things just for my own enjoyment before that. Mm-hmm. But it was around 2018, 2019 that I started thinking, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I really enjoy reading in Spanish in particular, but also in, in other languages, some of which we've already mentioned, uh, that um, aren't really widely translated uh, into English. Or in some cases, there's a few authors who just don't appear to get almost any English translation at all. And by this, I'm talking about authors who are long dead. You know, they're, they're, they're people who, um, like, there's been plenty of time for people to have translated their work to English. So I, it was when I started noticing that some of these authors who, whose work I found super interesting and enjoyable in Spanish didn't really have any accessible translations for, for an English audience that I, that I decided to start translating um yeah work by uh Ricardo Jaime Freire is one he, he's he's a modernist poet from Bolivia uh, Delmira Agustini who's from um Uruguay I've been translating some of her stuff and there are some translations available uh of her work but not not a whole lot it's not like what you see for you know some of the bigger names like Neruda or Borges you know you you're spoiled for choice when it comes to translations of Neruda <laughs> So I, I guess that was really what pushed me over the edge into translating with a, a an eye to actually submitting these poems was when I noticed that some some translations just weren't out there. And if anybody who spoke English but didn't speak Spanish was looking for these hmm. people's works, they weren't going to find all that much. Yeah. It's such a shame, though, that so much work, it's not lost, but it might as well be to large parts of the world. Um, um, so how long had you been working on your own poetry, um, before you started getting into translating poetry? Um, well, I only, only started submitting poems that I was writing in 2017. Yeah, not, not too much longer, (laughs) not too long before, before, uh, I started translating, uh, with, with a mind to actually getting it published. Mm. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed writing poetry since I was a little kid, actually, because I, I really liked uh, rhyming poetry. I liked formal poetry with meter and rhyme and stuff for a very long time before I started to enjoy free verse or um, types of formal poetry that didn't use meter or rhyme, mm. you know, like haiku, tanka, these things. But I had just sort of written things for my own enjoyment. I hadn't started publishing until pretty recently not too long ago Mm. i guess 2017 is actually not that recent now come to think of it it feels like it's very recent because i've been pretty much just sitting in the same room for like (laughs) the last two years but yeah about 
five years ago. I started submitting things in 2017 and... Um, well, ah, we're, we're submission twins. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Um, I hadn't been writing for like since childhood um, because I took like a very long break from creative stuff after I burnt myself out on it. Oh, you know, I, I did also in undergrad, I stopped writing as much creatively, like prose fiction and poetry and that sort of thing, because I was taking literature classes and I kind of got all literatured out while I was in undergrad and it took two years away from academia before I started to get back into it. So that probably helped push the date to as late as it was for me too. Mm. Yeah, um, for me, it wasn't, it was, um, it wasn't even writing, um, but I'm in high school, I actually studied art um, oh. and I was so obsessed with getting things perfect that by the time I graduated from high school that I was, I was like burnt out on it. Yeah. So, so. you were, you were doing like painting and. Yeah. Um, I started doing like um, visual art and then specialized um into interior design oh like a sort of yeah uh, in belgium you can do it in high school as sort of a specific preparation for then then going to college as an interior designer uh, yeah because there's all these european systems of education where you have sort of a major in high school right yeah yeah you like choose a direction and there's a certain curriculum attached to that so you have like in in like more um art directions you have very little maths and physics and biology and chemistry and all of that sort of gets replaced with sketching and like abstract art um right modeling in clay and stuff like that um and then in interior design you learn about furniture construction because you need to learn the constraint about the constraints of the medium um so that you know what you can design and what is basically realistic yeah. and what's not ah. um so it was it was in a way it was really fascinating but i uh, I could like spend hours doing doing a sketch of 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 something I designed and then in the end all I saw was like the flaws and the mistakes and I would scrap it all and start over uh, <laughs> until yeah, I that's, burnt myself that's out. That's very relatable. Yeah, all of my well not all but most of my sort of creative endeavors when I was a teenager and in my early 20s they were writing based they were you know writing mm. or drafting or at least planning <laughs> prose fiction and poetry and that sort of thing but i the same thing happened to me once you start obsessing over the details and uh especially when you're studying it mm. formally i think in a classroom and you do you do st sort of zero in on the faults right yeah because that's what you're doing when you're studying other people's work uh, you're talking about what you like about it, but you're also meant to be critiquing it and saying what could be better. So you apply that to your own work like threefold, yeah. I, I think, in many people's cases. And that happened for me, too. And I think that was part of the reason why I just couldn't do it for a while. Yeah. Are, are you back into interior design and, and those sorts of activities now? Um. No, no. Um. I'm doing like um. I find after a few years of writing that I do sort of need nonverbal creativity 
mm-hmm. as a sort of way to relax and to take the stress off. Um, but what I do now is like all um, yarn and fabric related. Oh, okay. So crocheting, knitting, um, sewing. Ooh, do you use I'm- any of um, Akua's patterns? I-, I saw that. That's a big, a big uh, activity for Akua Leslie Hope, you know, yeah. in the SFPA. She's really into that. Mm. Yeah, I find that it helps because it's not, you don't, I when I make stuff, I wear it or I give it away, but there's not that pressure for it to be perfect because I'm not going to submit it. I'm not going to try and sell it to places. Um, uh, yeah. So it's relaxing, but it's also something tactile, which allows like my brain to go quiet for a bit. Um and especially sewing, sort of, it feels like a puzzle um, because you cut out your fabric, you follow your pattern, but you take it one step at a time and it doesn't involve like abstract thoughts, if that makes sense. It's tactile and it's you, you let your hands work, but your mind can go quiet. Um, and I find that it really helps me like... Um, release a lot of the tension I build up inside my brain about writing and about the stuff that I I've basically like turned into a side hustle (laughs) Mm. yeah so it's it's weird yeah because I I do sort of use hands-on chores in that way sometimes you know just sort of to clear my mind once I've let dishes or that sort of thing pile up but uh this this also serves as a creative outlet at the same time in a way that like dishwashing doesn't so yeah, no, I can see the appeal. Uh-huh. Yeah, totally. Because I, I sort of, I function best when I can be creative. And if I have to go for long periods of time without creativity, I start getting like very difficult to live with. <laughs> Get antsy. Yeah, yeah. And sort of like snappish. And yeah, um, my patience goes out the window. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you found an outlet that works now since interior design is currently off the table. Yeah, well, it's it's I I think I need it to be something that I can't turn into a career, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there is there is a lot of pressure that comes with just knowing that the thing that you're working on is intended yeah. for a wider audience and that it will be seen by people who might you, you know, have a critical take yeah. on what they're reading, as as everybody does. Yeah. You know, whether what even even the most uh, accepting and generous and kind hearted mm. person will have, you know, thoughts about what they're reading, and they're not always going to be they're not always going to be in line with what you intended. Um, and there's always an element of some stress or potential stress when you're when you're writing for a wider audience. For uh, yeah. Especially for an audience who is reading this thing in a professional mm. sort of venue where it comes along with the implicit claim like this, this is professional product. You know, this is something that uh, I think is worthy of the attention of a readership of people who I don't know, who don't know me. Yeah. Yeah. But- so I, I can see I can see why it's it's quite different. Yeah. From from making something for yourself or for for someone you know personally Mm. yeah it's it's quite a different i think it's super important for everyone to sort of have something like that i mean it doesn't have to be like sewing or crochet or whatever um but there's such a pressure on people in like western society um and that uh, that 
activities you do, hobbies that you have, that they have to be worth your time and effort too. Um, and there's there's always mm. like this this underlying. I don't know how to explain it, but like the other day I made sort of like a, a retro style, vintage style flat cap um, for myself and I wore it when I went to work and one of my co-workers was like, was like, can I commission you to make me one? Um, you could totally sell those. And I was immediately like, I don't want to. Um you know, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, I there's definitely more than one person I know who is just an excellent cook. They're really great at baking, and people have often told them, you know, you should make you should make these things for sale uh, to sell them, and they've they've declined yeah. for. I, I expect the same kind of reasons that you had in mind. It would it would turn it would turn cooking yeah into a chore, a job rather than yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you just want to feed love, people, you know, to um, do. I can totally relate to that. So, but I think it's sort of important for everyone. I mean, you can, you can love and be passionate even about your writing and your poetry. Um, but I think everyone needs something in their lives that has no pressure to be performative, if that makes sense. Yeah, really kind of oddly for me right now, I think part of the reason that I've been able to, mm. even though, as, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, uh, I haven't been really focused on poetry at the moment. Um, in the last few years, part of the reason I've been able to write more poetry than I really had in the years leading up to that, um, and to actually send it out to editors, to, to readers in different parts of the world without getting too stressed over it is because it's been, mm -hmm. for me, yeah, what crocheting is for you right now. Because my the thing that I'm stressing over that I'm worrying about right now is my academic writing, <laughs> my my thesis that I'm working on and the the things that I've been sending to my supervisors and to other people at my university, you know, for, for their critique. And I'm worried about getting that wrong, uh, oftentimes uh, a little too worried. And I'm I'm trying to handle it better than I did in undergrad mm. um, so that I don't get burned out on. Uh, linguistics research. <laughs> I really, I really love learning more about the history of the languages I'm mm -hmm. looking at, but it's um, something that I do run the risk of kind of burning out on and needing to take some time away from uh, because I've been obsessing over the details, just like you did with um, your work in high school and as I did before with literature <laughs> in undergrad. So yeah, I'm trying to handle mm -hmm. that better. But while while that's been going on. Uh, translating poetry and writing poetry has been sort of a creative outlet that has nothing to do with the thing that's looming largest mm. on my mental horizon. And so even though I've been sending it to journals and uh, working on it uh, with the aim of getting it published, it's not been really the primary focus, you know? So it's it's been... It's been something that I've been able to do for enjoyment. And I think if I didn't have my academic work as the number one priority right now, that wouldn't be the case. And it would be, mm. <laughs> I would be at risk of burning out on, on poetry and, and translation and obsessing over that. That makes total sense. Because it's it's totally something that anyone who starts submitting and sort of perfecting their work is at risk of. So 
totally makes sense. And I can very much understand prioritizing the stuff you need to stress over. Um, but wow, this was quite a tangent. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No worries. We do side quests. Um, I don't play D&D, but I do side quests. Um, let's get back to the translation thing here. Because oh, right. <laughs> for some reason... <laughs> No, for some reason, it totally fascinates me. Um, also, because I speak multiple languages as well, but I, for some reason, struggle very much with translating because when I speak a language, I think mm. in that language as well. So when I'm talking to you, I'm thinking in English. But when I'm speaking French, like the inside of my head flops into French mode and it gets very difficult to navigate different languages it might just be something that i need to just practice more um but yeah the idea of of translating poetry i mean you're juggling probably like four glass balls already trying to bring a poem from one language into the other um because well i mean yeah mileage will vary and some languages are closer to each other than others but there's always going to be like this difference in syntax in rhythm and just the flavor and mouthfeel of the language so you have to balance that out and at the same time you i mean you'll have to substitute one word or phrase for another because not every wordplay makes sense in every language. And then you have to do that while maintaining the voice of the poet and removing yourself from the equation as much as you can. Um, so that just sounds impossibly hard to me mm. to do all of that simultaneously. Yeah, because, well, the way that you describe it, it does uh, sound impossible to me as well. Because <laughs> I, I wouldn't be Sorry. able to. No, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't. Something that has helped me avoid making this into a stressful project of like burnout proportions like we were talking about with other kinds mm -hmm. of creative endeavors is recognizing from the outset that what I wind up with at the end, the final product, is not going to be a one-to-one -one reflection of the original poem and not everything that I love about the original poem because you know ideally when you're translating a poem it's a poem that you love uh, mm -hmm. so most of the poems that I've been working with they're they're ones that I really enjoyed as a reader before I approached them as a translator and um, that was why I wanted to, them to be given to people who, who couldn't speak uh, the language that the poem was in originally mm -hmm. um, I, I have to recognize that not everything that made me interested in that poem, not everything that really impacted me about that poem is going to make it into the English text. And so you have to kind of choose at the outset, or at least I do. There might be translators out there who, who are just sort of the more complete artist than I am. But uh, in, in my case, I have to choose which elements of that poem are the most important to me which sort of tactics and devices that the poet used are the most salient for me, um, uh, the most interesting that I really want to see reflected in the English version. Um, and yes, tone, especially for, for poetry, a lot of times tone is one of the things that I, I look at first and foremost. Of course, you want to you wanna have the content of the poem translate. You don't want to go completely off the rails when it comes to the meaning of the the phrases in the poem you know the basic sentences in the poem you want to you want to get as close to the uh meaning when it comes to the content you know as possible but 
yeah, tone, you do have to make some choices when it comes to tone, when it comes to um, form. Uh, how close do you want to try to follow the form of the original, especially if it is, you know, a rhyming poem, a metered poem, um, mm. or follows some other sort of structure. Uh, there's some cases where I'll just discard the form completely and just change it into free verse um, because I can't find a way to echo the form in English without losing some element of tone or of meaning that matters to me more. Mm -hmm. um, but this is actually partly why I really enjoy reading different translations of the same piece when it comes to the work of other translators. I, I actually really enjoy com comparing translations of different people because you, you know when it's a literary translation, no, no two translations are ever going to be identical. They're going to emphasize different things. So when you read translations by different people, you get a sense not only of the original, um, but you get a sense of the translator's engagement with the original piece. Uh, so it's almost two, two things layered on top of each other that you're getting there. And that's partly why when I'm translating works by people whose work hasn't been translated a great deal, I, I very often think, well, you know, I sure hope that what I've done encourages other translators out there to produce their own takes on this because mm -hmm. I don't want my translation to be the only one <laughs> of, of a really good poem. I want there to be alternatives available so that people who can't read something in Spanish, they'll still be able to look at different translations into English of that poem and be able to, in that way, get a sense of the various readings that someone might have of the same piece in mm -hmm. Spanish or in whatever other language. I, I just realized I never actually um, answered your question way back when, when you said, do I translate things uh, the other way around? <laughs> do I only translate into English? I actually do translate sometimes into Spanish. Mm -hmm. That's the only other one that I've tried. Um, but uh, it's also not work that I've sent out into the world um, because I feel until until maybe a decade ago, I'd say that the poetry that I'd engaged with the most was was poetry written in English. I'd read poetry in Spanish, but it was especially poetry in English that I was most deeply read in. Mm -hmm. And I think for that reason, I have more practice writing poetry in English. I, I most a lot of the things I wrote as a teenager were in imitation of poets who wrote in English that I really enjoyed. So I still feel most comfortable writing um, poetry in English, but I have written some things in Spanish uh, that, again, I haven't sent anywhere. And I've translated some of my own poetry that I originally wrote in English into Spanish, so I might send that somewhere eventually. And uh, a couple things by, like, Ursula K. Le Guin I translated into Spanish, but I didn't send anywhere. It was just, it was just sort of a project for my own enjoyment really maybe maybe in the future i'll do more with that but yeah i think i think it can be very different as you say every language is different and also your own individual relationship to different languages is different and i think that's almost more important than the grammar of the language or the sound of the language it's how you your relationship with that language is going to be different and that's really important when looking at translation and the work of translators i think yeah that does make sense and it does make it sound a little less daunting when you 
explain it all like that. <laughs> well, I hope so because um, I'd, I'd like to see you. I'd like to see you get. <laughs> Give it a whirl, because I th- I think it would be interesting to see more more things from Dutch in the speculative poetry community. Well, I sort of I always find it kind of sad how how underappreciated and often even non-existent um, speculative literature is over here. Hmm. It's like when you live in Belgium and you want to read books, you read crime or you read literary stuff, and that's it. And Literally, we have this chain bookstore here um, called Standard Buchhandel. They're pretty much the only brick and mortar bookstores that you can even find at this point in most cities. And my local one literally has one shelf in the entire store. And the genre is called Exciting Books. And it is everything from um, sort of like thriller to horror to sci-fi to fantasy to... If it's exciting, it goes there and that's it. Mm. And that's only translations and like Dutch fiction, because then there's another section that's just called English books. Ah. And that's all the English language works they have in stock. And that's just that's like basically two shelves where you might get lucky and find some Brandon Sanderson. Ah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much. So I was really excited about the appearance of a uh, speculative poetry magazine, Speculatif. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping that if it finds a readership, that people are going to start not just appreciating, but going to start to realize the richness and the depth of of stuff you can find within the speculative genres yeah it would be it would be really great if that had sort of a a ripple effect you know on literature uh in dutch yeah i think yeah do you feel like the situation is more or less the same in the netherlands with dutch literature as what you see in belgium or i think so um Mm, okay yeah because of course i i've been interested in in suriname specifically which is predominantly dutch speaking because yeah. because of that uh south american anthology i'm working on but i really don't have a sense of what's there mm. in uh suriname poetry and in or if there is sort of things available in speculative uh, genres in the yeah. literature of suriname and from what you're saying you know now i'm kind of wondering you know how much there might be <laughs> well you you've get you've got this one magazine in holland in the netherlands mm-hmm. which accepts Dutch language submissions only, as far as I recall. Okay. Um, But that's like the only place, the only market you have where you could like send speculative stuff. Uh, hmm. Paid markets are not a thing. Right. So it's all very, very um, narrow, let's say. And I feel like, I don't know, in Belgium, we have like a lot of folklore especially in the more rural regions. Um, and a lot of our folklore is tied up with Catholicism. And Catholicism often, to many people, it has become a sort of folkloristic thing rather than an actual religion. Um, but I feel like in, in the Netherlands, um, Catholicism isn't very prevalent. There's a lot of Protestants there. And the active actively religious people take it much more seriously and 
I, I might be completely wrong and it might just be like this weird distorted view I have of the Dutch, but I feel like that we call it, um, uh, nuchter, um, sober, but like mentally sober. Um, they're very down to earth and very grounded. And I feel like, yeah, I find it hard to, to rhyme the way I see most Dutch people with, with like a very active, um, speculative scene. Hmm. Okay. Which is to say, which is not to say there's not going to be like <sighs> fantasy and sci-fi readers. Um, I just feel like they don't have a lot of opportunity in Dutch to to like bring their work forward. I know of at least one writer who is Dutch, um, who publishes in English. Um, Joachim Hendermans. He like writes short stories. But I feel like, I don't know, because like if you have one magazine to write for, that that doesn't like motivate you because ha what are the chances you're going to get accepted? And what are you going to do with your stories after you get rejected from that one magazine? You know, whereas if you were writing in English, you can just send it on and on and on to the next magazine and the next magazine until it finds a home, because sometimes... It's just, it's it's a matter of mm, sheer luck yeah. to have the right story, hit the right desk at, with the right editor at the right time. And if you only have one opportunity to send things to, how does that, you know? So I think for a lot of people writing in Dutch, sorry, sorry, go oh, ahead. I, no, I mean, I was just going to say that I feel like for English language uh, fiction and poetry, there's been kind of a boom in recent decades for online, online only uh markets yeah. and i'm a little surprised that that hasn't happened for dutch as well not not to the same extent but i thought there'd be some you know i wouldn't have thought it would just be you know this one print venue dominating everything yeah well let's let's hope speculative sort of sounds in the beginnings of a change there because i i for one would welcome it because the first issues of speculative how do you say it? speculative 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 Okay. Well, anyway, yeah. pardon my <laughs> lack of Dutch. But <laughs> no worries, yeah, you're doing uh, great. But I, I know that the first issues are focused on translation, which is all being undertaken by just the editor, right? Yeah. Which is uh, impressive. And I hope that that does not result in burnout. I was almost a little concerned when I first heard that that was the plan. But as long as the passion stays strong, you know, I mm -hmm. think that later it's going to be open to um, submissions in Dutch, right? From from people writing in Dutch. So yeah, I, I really do hope that that'll mm -hmm. take off. I hope that it gets it gets submissions from people who are writing in Dutch for Dutch readership, and perhaps eventually those stories and poems and things could be translated into English so I can read them because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have much luck with them in in the original Dutch but I would still like to see I would still like to see yeah. some growth there because uh, yeah it sounds like there's definitely room <laughs> for development from what you're saying yeah absolutely I think a large part of why I personally feel uncomfortable writing in Dutch the way I do and which I don't have in English is just because the amount of things you can read are so limited mm. um because before it gets translated, it's already it's already had to have had a lot of success in English. So what sort of stuff gets translated? The Witcher, Brandon Sanderson, The Lord of the Rings, The Wheel of Time, and sort of yeah, you Sarah Sarah J. Maas gets translated as well. 
But like the majority of speculative literature never even makes it into translation. So 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 The Witcher, it's specifically because it was popular in English, you think, because that one's like Polish originally, right? The Witcher. Yeah. Yeah, so if it sees a fairly large readership in English, that Mm. seriously increases the chances of making it into translation. Um, But I feel like I'm not as well read in Dutch speculative literature or literature in in general because because your choices are so narrow. Yeah, and I think that's really, in my case too, I mean, of course, my first language is English, but Spanish, as I said, is very close, second for me. And... Mm -hmm. um, I was comfortable speaking, you know, for whether whether formally or informally, you know, whatever, whatever the register of the conversation, I was comfortable speaking with people for a much longer time than I was comfortable writing in Spanish. And there's plenty of stuff out there to read in Spanish. But just because I wasn't seeking it out on my own, in the way that I had books sort of dropped on me in school, because my school was an English medium school, uh, mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wasn't comfortable writing in Spanish for a very long time, despite speaking it on the daily. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I can definitely see where you're coming from with feeling uncomfortable with Dutch um, as a writer, even though it's your first language, uh, because whatever you read in the most is what you're naturally going to be inclined to write in. Um, and I, I have been finding myself more and more at ease with writing in Spanish the more I read in Spanish. Um, and the more I pick up on different authors' styles in Spanish and that sort of thing. So I, I feel like, yeah, if there's more and more out there in Dutch, you know, hopefully you'll you'll be able to find a similar effect on your own <laughs> writing and you'll be able to get more comfortable with that because you'll have more to read that interests you in Maybe. Dutch. Yeah. That would be nice because my mum keeps yelling at me to write in Dutch. Oh. <laughs> because she wants to read my work and she's not... Um, She's not proficient enough in English to to make it through like more than a page. Um, Ooh, well, that has... is a very big incentive. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I would like to, but whenever I like try, I get back into the same mindset of seeing only things I hate about what mm. I'm writing. Um, it's also it's rather exhausting. I did try like translating a couple of my stories, but it gives me a headache to to like. Um, switch back and forth because yeah because I can't when I when I write a Dutch paragraph I I want to be thinking in Dutch and when I read the original my mind flops back into English Mm. I don't know if other people's brains work that way mine are weird I've found (laughs) I I think whatever language you are most often using is yeah it's going to be the one that you naturally gravitate towards um yeah in the context in which you normally use it so for if for you english is the language that you are most often navigating literature and you know writing uh, reading um then yeah your brain i think it's just going to be it's habit right it's it's just a matter mm-hmm. of habit it's going to it's going to get pulled that way i've i've seen um a similar thing in in my father because he is he he didn't even start speaking uh, Spanish until he was a young adult. I think until he was like twenty, well, eighteen. I guess he started learning. But um, nowadays, yeah, he sometimes finds it a little difficult to come up with the English way of saying certain things, um, mm. and he has to resort to Spanish. So it, even even if even if it's a language that you've spoken your entire life, 
yeah, your brain falls into it falls into the groove with one language or another. And uh, if you're not if you're not really making an effort to build up a habit in a certain language, yeah, you're gonna you're probably gonna naturally resort to the other one, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so this might be a stupid question, but I mean, translation is a field I'm very much unfamiliar with. But do you like find poems? in a certain language and then you like contact the poet and ask them for their consent if they're still living and then you start translating or do you get like poets coming to you in search of a translator as well um how does that part work oh well in my case it's it's been me approaching the poets when it comes to um uh, living poets uh most of the poetry I've been working with is actually stuff that's in the public domain because it's in that uh, 1850 to 1950 <laughs> timeframe uh, I mentioned. Yeah. Um, and so in the case of many of those poets, uh, they died more than 70 years ago. And in the countries mm -hmm. that matter for legal reasons, their their work is in the public domain. But no, I mean, in the case of Elias Caure, who I mentioned, the, the Guarani um and Spanish language poet. And yeah, I've translated some work by Claudia Vaca as well, who's who's another poet mm -hmm. from uh, Bolivia who writes in, in Spanish specifically. In both of those cases, I, yeah, I, I asked them. I already knew Claudia from some other academic projects that we were both working on. And so I reached out to her uh, after I had read some of her poetry that I really thought I would enjoy translating and I asked her I asked her actually if she had anything for uh, the indigenous futurisms uh, issue of eye to the telescope mm -hmm. she um, yeah she sent me some of her poetry that hadn't actually been published so I hadn't read that stuff yet and that was really that was really exciting that was really fun to get to read some brand new work from her and and translate that and they did take one of one of her poems for that issue uh Tiffany Morris the editor for that issue did take one of them so that was That was really good to get to work on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I reached out to her and mm -hmm. Elias Caure as well. Um, I reached out to him via somebody we both knew, a mutual acquaintance. I haven't actually met him in person, but um, I hope to at some point when I'm back in Bolivia. <laughs> cool. So when you get to work, when you sit down with a poem and you start translating it, how does that look? Do you have, what does your process uh, for, for translation look like? Well, uh, as I already said, I, I usually have to have a think before I get started about which elements of the poem I especially want to see um, surface in the translation, which things I'm going to focus on uh, bringing out for the English-speaking readers. So that's the first thing I do. I, I decide if it's a formal poem, is the translation going to be formal? If so, is it going to be the same form, or am I going to use some some different structure that just sort of gives a nod to the original poem structure and how am i going to try to establish the tone that i'm picking up on as a reader of the poem uh, how am i going to bring that out in the translation uh, can i use the same devices that the poet used or do i have to um come up with a different means of establishing this tone because it's not always gonna you know there can be instances of onomatopoeia or assonance or, or, you know, different different things that might not be able to mm -hmm. uh, be directly utilized in the exact same way in the English translation. So I have to figure all that out first, and then I get started. And uh, quite often, my initial 
my initial uh, translation of the line won't won't be perfect. It won't it won't fit the form that I've chosen exactly or uh, meet the conditions that I've selected precisely. But um, I'll start with a sort of a rough translation that I think captures the literal meaning, and then I'll start editing it into the shape that I want it to look like in the end. Mm-hmm. And has working on translations changed your outlook on or approach to poetry at all? Um, I think any time that you're reading work by an author that you really admire, or even actually just just work by by authors in general, even even if it's work that you don't think is especially high quality, that can also have an impact on on your own work because you'll be thinking, you know, I want to avoid this or that. But when it's authors who you admire, you pick up on things that you think they've done really well. They might open your eyes to new uh, devices mm-hmm. that you hadn't thought about using before. Um, and so in that sense, just because when I'm translating a poem, I have to really engage with the poem for quite a long period of time because in my personal case it takes quite a long time to translate a poem probably longer than it takes me to write a poem that's original to me <laughs> because i've i'm i'm have all these factors in mind you know that need to be present in the final product so eh, of course when you're spending that long with a piece of work and in many cases i'm i'm translating work by the the same author over and over, like several pieces by the same author, um, that's going to have an impact on your writing because you're going to be learning from those authors as you translate. And yeah, I'd say I'd say in that sense, it's in the same sense as like just reading things <laughs> it has an impact on your work. This is this is just sort of a very close, intense reading of the work that's going on. So it does it does impact my work mm-hmm. in that way. And also, as I've said, um, just this this endeavor of translating the work of different authors has has got me reading more and more in Spanish than I than I used to be doing because uh because I've been enjoying yeah. the act of translating and so that has made me more comfortable with Spanish also so in that very uh in that very sort of practical sense it's had an impact on my writing in that I actually do sometimes write in Spanish which I barely ever did before so yeah nice nice um I sort of, I I, I tend to do that even if I if I don't translate it. Like, sit with a poem and sort of read it, and then put it away and return to it the next day. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's it's not unique to to translating, but yeah, I, I would say it's just a very intense reading. Yeah, but yeah. it's true that you experience poems differently when you when you take them in like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I should probably do more of that either way. Mm. I think I think if you do, you will see it have an effect on your writing. That's not translation. You will see it um, bringing, you know, possibilities mm. to mind that you might not have thought of otherwise. The problem is that I can never choose. So I want to I, I want to read as many different poems as I can. And there's something to that, um, to, to like reading widely, but sort of taking the time and savoring a poem more is something I I always keep wanting to do and just never give myself the time for. Um, so this is just like the perfect excuse, basically. Do you do you listen? Do you listen to m- much poetry? Yeah. I also enjoy listening to readings of poetry, and sometimes when I'm not, there are times when I'm not really up for reading 
yeah by eyeball <laughs> let's say you know reading on the page and i enjoy listening to it and that that can be a completely different experience really absolutely i i tend to like i have quite i have a few like poetry podcasts in my regular listening list and i play them when i'm doing when i'm like sewing or when i'm working mm. outside like in the yard or in the in the pasture basically because having horses involves a lot of shoveling shit <laughs> <laughs> and you need to do some uh, you don't need to but it's it's less annoying to do that sort of work if you have something nice to listen to so i do i i listen to a few podcasts and i do find that if you if you don't have the visual aspect there it it can change and different readers can totally change mm. a work basically this is just the perfect excuse to give myself permission and time to sit with one piece longer um because i have this fear of missing out when i'm not reading as as much as i can you mean missing sense. out on current things things that are being published now or just in gen yeah n not just current things i do a good bit of like reading older works as well it's not that i just want to like i'm greedy and i want to consume mm. all the things um Oh yeah, like those those uh, yeah. posters that say "so many books, so little time." But yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> that is definitely me. They make me feel so called out. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> when I'm rereading a book that I really, I really love, I, I get a little bit of that kind of in the back of my mind, thinking, you know, well, shouldn't I be reading one of the many, many things in my pile of like to read books that I have instead of going back to this book I've already read like three times in my life? But. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, if if you're if you're just there to get enjoyment out of the process of reading, if you're if you're just there to to have a good time, you know, yeah, you shouldn't feel guilty. I don't think we should feel guilty for rereading things. That's perfectly fine. No, no, definitely. But um let's talk about your own work for a bit. Um you do a fair bit of tanka and sci-fi And coincidentally that those um forms are the ones I did a lot when I first started out. So something always tingles uh, tingles me when I see other people writing those forms. I, I still absolutely love Tanka. And I don't always write them, but I keep returning to, to them um, every now and then. So where does your fascination with those come from? Oh, well, so as a reader, I, I really enjoyed haiku before I found out about sci-fi-ku, which I suppose is the usual <laughs> progression for most people. <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't really started writing haiku before I got into sci-fi-ku. And sci-fi-ku was the one that really piqued my interest um, and made me want to try writing. Although, having said that, I have also written haiku in the traditional sense. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have a bunch of those in Spanish. Yet another collection that's not there to be linked to. It's just, you're just going to have to take my word for it that I have all these things sitting in like notebooks and files on my computer. Someday I'll get them out there. But yeah, I, I do really enjoy haiku in the traditional sense. And that's not something that really interested me when I first learned about it in school. Because I, I mean, it's not my teacher's fault. It was just the way it was presented in the curriculum when I first heard about it, it just wasn't super interesting to me. It was like, oh, there's, you know, this 575 syllable count for, for English, you know, and in, in uh, Japanese, it's slightly different because it's more, but uh, still 575, right? And, um, mm. and there's like nature, 
involved. <laughs> and that's like pretty much all I got from it in school. But mm. later on, when I was in undergrad, I it wasn't even for a course. I had just sort of picked up this book that was at my grandmother's house that she happened to have that was translations of some of the more famous haiku from older times, you know, like some of the some of the, like sort of the founding writers of haiku in Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just reading through that collection really sparked my interest. And then I, I started looking for more translations of haiku from from later poets as well, like Shiki. I really like I really like stuff by Shiki. Mm. And uh, after that, though, I, I wasn't really writing it all that much myself. But when I found out about sci-fi coup, I, I think it was actually the magazine Sci-Fi Quest that first tipped me off to it. That really was just an innovative idea to me. And I just really loved the idea of treating this sci-fi concept or, or a fantasy concept, you know, uh, anything from these genres as reality, just without a whole lot of detail without really going into the world building background of it. I, I, I thought it was very interesting how some sci-fi coup poets could just make this fictional world seem so present in so few words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah, really bring it to life in just a few words. And I, I just really enjoyed that kind of aspect of it as as a writing experiment. And then I just kind of fell into the rhythm of it for a while, especially in 2018, I was just sort of writing sci-fi coup after sci-fi coup and then tanka after tanka because tanka, um, as a reader, I, I almost enjoy more than sci-fi coup. I, I like how it, how it has, um, I'd say that haiku have two parts to them generally uh, mm-hmm. and tanka kind of have three, but I, <laughs> I, like, I like that third component to the tanka where, where things suddenly get more personal or sometimes less personal you know it just has a switch in perspective suddenly um yeah and that that's something that i really enjoy in in kind of writing these very short sci-fi narratives as well so yeah i don't know they're 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 fast i wouldn't say that that makes them easier than writing longer kinds of poetry but it does make it something that you can squeeze into a shorter amount of time if you're kind of busy and that was probably part of the appeal as well you know mm. um, you can get yeah, you can get a full sense. a full draft of a tanka or sci-fi coup down in uh, a matter of minutes and then you can tinker around with it later but yeah you already have something there and you're like yes this is going to be a complete poem i can already see the full contours of it <laughs> you know it's a very yeah. satisfying in that regard yeah it feels sort of if i can compare like writing to to like art styles sort of they feel more impressionistic like a snapshot rather than an elaborate painting Mm. but there's yeah there's an art to both of those of the styles the longer poetry forms and the shorter but i definitely have a soft spot for like well micro poetry in general but especially sci-fi ku and tanka so it's nice to see that in other people. Yeah, I, I especially like sci-fi haiku that really takes the history of haiku in English mm. into account. Well, talking about sci-fi haiku specifically in English, which is, yeah, I think I've only read sci-fi haiku in English. I don't think I've read it in Spanish. Borges and some other people have, have haiku in Spanish that kind of approaches sci-fi haiku, but it's not quite 
Yeah, I'm sure it exists, but I haven't read it. So yeah, sci-fi coup in English, the stuff I, I really like is the sci-fi coup that takes the whole tradition of haiku, like literary haiku, into account and plays with that, you know, rather than rather than the things that it's fine, you know, when people are just, they take a, a sci-fi concept and they just state it in three lines and then call it a day. This is all right, but I really like the ones that follow the rules <laughs> or the implied rules of haiku for mm -hmm. English, um, even, even though now we're discussing uh, a world that is not our world. Uh, it's a fictional scenario, but even so, they're, they're approaching it with the mindset that this is something that's being written by somebody who inhabits that world. For, for the narrator of the poem, this is not a fictional world. And I, I like mm -hmm. I like the sci-fi coup where that really is clear. Yeah, it, it makes it feel more like inhabited or something. Mm, yeah. Mm. So I did read uh, some of your work for all that you say you have nothing to link to and only stuff to talk about <laughs> and oh. <laughs> the one poem <laughs> the one poem that stuck with me the most has got to be i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right kibla um ah well you know i that's how i would say it also but i'm also not an arabic speaker mm. so i also don't know if um I, yeah it might be one of those like throat sounds but I can't make that. Uh, well, for whatever it's worth, when I wrote the title Kibla, I was, I was, you know, it's an English, it's an English tanka, mm. and the title is also in English, even though the origin of the yeah. word is Arabic. So I would say Kibla, but yeah. Yeah. So that poem starts with like a prayer room for people of all religions, which is a space I'm kind of familiar with because every hospital I've ever worked in refers to them as silent spaces where people can go where nothing is expected or required, um, just to be like to sit with themselves or if they need a moment, um, because sometimes it can be a lot being in a hospital, either as patient or as accompanying a patient. Yes, I've also I've also encountered these sorts of spaces in airports. I was thinking of mm. hospitals, but also airports, especially because yeah. the setting of this particular tanka is maybe more akin to an airport a little bit. Yeah, but sort of the thing I, I which hit me very much when I first read it and which hits me even harder now that there's like countries being invaded mm. all over again is that wouldn't it just be so nice if we could get along the way people in your poem do, you know, each in their own belief, but respectful of one another. But then you take that space and you put it in a different place across the galaxy where Muslims have to calculate not where Mecca lies, but where Earth lies. So they have a place to direct their prayers to. It, it felt, for a poem that short, you gave me a lot to think about because it's, maybe that distance is what it will take for people to realize that this planet is the very thing that we all share and which could unite us if we let it rather than divide us in disputes over land or resources. Yeah, I just oh, absolutely love it. Yeah, it was published in print, the May edition of the 2019 Sci-Fi Quest. If you read Dutch... It's going to come out in, uh, how do you say it again? Speculative? Yeah. It's going to come out there, but in Dutch. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. I look forward to that. I'm really glad that when you read it, that kind of interpretation came to the forefront for you because I was myself sort of thinking of the distance of Earth 
being away from Earth, making everybody sort of have that more in common, their common humanity being underscored by the fact that they're no longer on Earth together. It's sort of like when people go to a different part of the globe in, in our in our mundane present day reality, you know, like if people from mm. different parts of Argentina who within Argentina are considered like, oh, well, you know, I'm from this province and this sort of background and I'm very culturally different from this other mm-hmm. this person from this other part of Argentina with this other cultural background when they when they go to you know Canada the pair of them suddenly uh they're both Argentinian and that's like more salient for them in this new context than the differences are and I I feel like yeah that's that's something that's interesting to explore when you see humans going other places altogether in sci-fi or in fantasy when when you see them yeah. leaving this planet's context uh suddenly if you're in a place where where human isn't the only thing that you might be you really have that underscored for you you know actually this is this is a very big feature we have in common that <laughs> we're both human uh and it's not it's not something that comes to the forefront as often when um you're focused on all the mm. all the differences within that categorization yeah mm, absolutely so yeah, if you if you're up for it, I would totally love if we could share this poem with people because obviously I I love it. This has got to be one of my absolute favorite short poems I've come across. Oh man, okay, I feel I feel like it's getting so. hyped up a little bit too much now if you're about to read no, it. No, <laughs> no, I like it. Well, no, I'm I'm very glad you I do. Like I'm it very that glad much. you do. I don't know. Sometimes you just read something that smacks you in the face with all these thoughts you know? And those are the sort of poems I really like, so that's why this one really gelled with me. Um, okay, so here we go. Kibla. Multi-faith prayer room. A woman counts the rosary as three men spread rugs after careful calculation to face the unseen earth. So all the rest is, is like written in between the lines. And uh, I just love that. Mm. It. Uh, I always want to do stuff like that myself, but I, I feel like I don't quite get there. It's just sort of the things you leave unsaid often have that much more power. Mm. And this poem does that. Well, I, I'm really, I'm really glad it does that for you. And thank you very much for, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, giving me this, this, you know, sort of confidence boost here and knowing that this, that something I've written has had that big of a emotional impact on somebody. That's really, that's really nice to hear. I'm, mm. I'm very pleased with that. But I do think that, yeah, that's something that I, I try to aim for when I'm writing, especially these very short form kind of poems. You want to have the reader themselves be doing a lot of the heavy lifting because mm-hmm. I think that in my my case, when I'm reading something, if I'm the one, I, I have to kind of deduce, as you say, from what's not written. I have to read between the lines. Then the message or or the, the scene that's being laid out will stick with me a lot better than when I have everything spelled out for me in great detail. So in a lot of my, my favorite mm-hmm. haiku and sci-fi ku and tanka, when, when I'm reading them, a lot of them get their message across without really giving me the full picture. And that's part of the reason why they're so memorable for me as well. So I'm, I'm really glad it worked out that way for you with this one. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a poet 
or writer who has had a defining influence on your own work? Um, I mean, I think <laughs> this is always kind of a cop out, isn't it? But I think there's several. Like, I, I, I wouldn't say there's just one. But um, when it comes to poetry, I know early on, T.S. Eliot was one of the ones when I was a teenager who really made me want to start writing more poetry. And uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins as well. These are both rather old school and stuffy. But yeah, no, they they really kind of kicked off my desire to be writing more poetry myself and not just formal poetry where I was very focused on the rhyme and meter because as I said that was that was really my focus at the start when I was a kid was on the rhyme and meter but um, when I read things by poets like Eliot who didn't rely on those and who well he, he does incorporate some of that but who who also used other sorts of tactics to make an impact and and get the reader to dive deeper into what was going on. That that really made me want to do more of that myself. And uh, yeah, later, uh, for Spanish, Alfonsina Storni is someone who has really kind of influenced my sense of what is what is eloquent and beautiful in Spanish language poetry. She's mostly known, I think, to English language readers for some of her more... Um, some of her more overtly feminist writings. And I think that that's how she uh, makes her way into classrooms most often in translation is, is with some poems that really reflect in a very overt way feminist ideas and uh, kind of question women's role in society, the, the, the roles that women have been assigned in uh, the society of her day. But she actually writes on a very wide variety of topics and she wrote a lot of fantasy poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've read a lot of stuff by her. I really, I really uh, enjoy, especially her later work um, for its eloquence and, and the way that she can get at an idea in very few words as well, like you were saying, mm -hmm. and just make it stick. So yeah, I, I think there's, there's quite, quite a few poets, most of them, English language poets, but also some in Spanish. Borges is also somebody whose poetry I really uh, enjoy in Spanish, who's who I've been reading for years. And so he's he's probably had an impact as well. But yeah, for English also E.E. E. Cummings. I really like E.E. E. Cummings, like since since way back when. Yeah. So he, he's he's done some things that really surprised me on the first reading. And that made me want to kind of emulate what he did myself you know there's there's times i'll be reading an ee e. cummings poem and i'll be almost at the end before i realize hey wait a second this is a perfect sonnet i thought he was just you know running along in free verse but this is actually like a perfectly structured traditional sonnet and there was so much else going on that i didn't even realize this until i'm like almost at the end of the poem you know so he really does things that even to this day i find i find very innovative and surprising and that i would like to have reflected in my own work so hopefully he's had an impact because i really like his stuff so yeah i hope that shows up from time to time in my own work okay so i do have uh one more question before we move on to the prompt of the month and that is if there was one piece of writing advice you could give to a younger version of you what would it be um i mean i think it would depend on what stage you know, of my past we're looking at, because mm -hmm. if it was me in undergrad 
we've already talked about burnout. We've already talked about being your own, you know, worst critic and that sort of thing. And at that stage, I would have told my younger self, you know, don't worry about it. Just, just write and don't worry about the critiques, you know, that that'll come later. Just get what you're thinking about down on paper and, you know, the editing and all that can come later. It doesn't need to be perfect at the first pass. Mm. And I mean, I guess that is something that I would even tell my present self. So, you know, good to hear it again from my own mouth, I guess. Actually, one thing, a big thing I would tell my especially young self is just don't presume that you're going to remember the idea you had. This is just on a very practical level. Don't assume you're going to remember because I found out my brain, my brain is like a sieve. Everything just leaks out. (laughs) So there's been so many times where I've had an idea for a poem or for a story and I've only written down like the beginnings of a note on it Mm -hmm. and thought that's enough. I'll know what I'm talking about because the idea was so clear to me at the time. And, uh, yeah, later on, this proved to be false. I <laughs> went back to my note and thought, well, what what was I on about? You know, what was the rest of this idea? I remember thinking it was really cool, but this is not enough to, to <laughs> go on for me now that I've forgotten the rest of the details. So yeah, I, I guess I would tell my younger self just on the practical level, write down details, just everything that you can get out at the first pass, write it down on paper because you're not gonna, you cannot rely on your brain to retain this information later, even if you're the one who's coming up with the idea, that doesn't mean it's gonna stick. <laughs> and that's also something I've been getting better at slowly as as uh, time has gone on, both when it comes to writing fiction and poetry mm-hmm. and when it comes to my academic work, because this has been a big problem for me in, in research from time to time. I think, oh, yeah, 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 I'll remember that. And no. <laughs> You need to you need to have it written down. In in my case, I need to have it written down. So yeah, write in detail. Details, please. That's what I would tell my younger self, I guess. Well, it 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 I feel so seen right now. <laughs> because <laughs> Ah, this is also you. <laughs> this is also me. Because like not so long ago I got a story rejection and it actually included super actionable feedback and I was talking things through with my friend and I was like, I could fix it like this and this and this based on what they said and he was like, that's a great idea. And now neither of us remembers what the oh no oh no yeah no no this definitely yeah even even talking it over also that's the other problem is sometimes the notes are actually counterproductive or speaking about something can be counterproductive because at least for me i find that once i've written a bit or spoken about something Mm. a bit my brain files that as yep over and done with you've already you've already talked about it or you've already written down a note, so now you don't need to remember. And it goes into mm. the discard category in my yeah. mind. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think if I if I had that kind of conversation with somebody, that would be the end of it for me, too. Well, I, I, my my yeah. brain would do away with it. So. I actually need conversations like that um, because that's how I chew through my own thoughts by re- like reiterating them to someone else. So maybe Oh, I definitely think it's very helpful to do that. But, but yeah, maybe I that's think that... why then I, I forget what I say because my brain's like, Yeah, okay, we've covered that. Yeah. yeah. That's not I never thought we of both it that we way. both need to have a notebook with us at all times <laughs> and write things down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds totally. like we have a shared a shared problem here. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so each of my guests, um, I always invite um, to challenge our listeners with like a fun or an interesting prompt. Do you have one for us? Ah, well, since we've been talking about um, haiku and sci-fi-ku, mm-hmm. here's one that I, I find has worked very well for me with uh, sci-fi-ku in particular. So the prompt is everyone should think of something that they see in the daily mundane world, you know, something that they consider kind of unexceptionable in in real life. And then uh, I want them to think of uh, something that is completely foreign to life on this planet now, as they know it, um, something from fantasy or from sci-fi, right? But like a specific, a specific element of those things. And now they should write a poem that combines both of those things in equal measure. Something from this real, real life world that they're living in and something that they consider completely foreign to this world. Put both of those together as the two central themes of the poem. Oh, nice. I'm going to play with that one. Most of my sci-fi coups start out that way. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you decide to play around with Britney's prompts, um, do let us know. Like hit us up on Twitter or come and join our Discord and th- talk about your idea because we'd love to hear about it. Or I would. I think Britney does too. Mm. I'm suddenly second guessing myself. Did anybody else have this prompt already? Because I'll come up with no. another one if so. No. Okay. No. I we, feel, I feel we like had something similar. We had like take a painting or a piece of art and turn it into something speculative. Mm. We've had an image prompt. We've had um, we've had take an abstract concept and turn it into something concrete, like the the smell of justice or the shape uh. of, of anger, <laughs> stuff like that. But we've not had this one. Oh, the smell the smell of justice sounds like an ad that like Superman would be in for Dior, <laughs> you know, if he was on hard times like <laughs> See? Now there's a poetry idea for you already. Um, actually no, I because I had a lot of fun playing around with colors. Um like what would what would colors smell like? What would green smell like? Or what would gray smell like and stuff like that? And and that was sort of my way of, of turning abstracts into concretes. But yeah. Huh. It's um or yeah, it's it's or or the other way around. You take a smell or a taste and you attach a color to it. Um like what would be the color of of you know that one actually just happens to me in life like tasting stuff like sometimes i'm like oh that's this color and i don't know why because there's like this um yeah it's eh. a thing i've read about it not so long ago yeah i know i know it's a it's a real condition that somebody i don't think i have that because i don't i don't experience this across the board but there's like some very specific things that very often for me just those specific items they they are colors to me when I taste them and like I don't think I have the condition in general because it's only it's only some tastes it's not everything Mm. but yeah no there's like a specific kind of like wine that's always this very specific kind of darkish yellow nice (laughs) and there's this like there's this uh, vanilla cookie that's like a very specific kind of pink for me. And I always forget. Well, now I remembered because you brought it like you were bringing up this kind of thing. But yeah, then I'll, I'll drink that wine or I'll, I'll eat that cookie and I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's this yellow one or this pink one. And I'll remember that I had it happen before. Ah, I don't know why. Hmm. It's interesting the way different brains make different connections. Hmm. It never stops fascinating me because mine always works in images 
So whenever I have a, a thought and I need to explain it to someone, I need to translate it into words. And I hear other people, other people's brains don't do that. So, <laughs> well, I so, think a lot of people must. You, you mean it's always in images, not in sounds? Like you don't hear words ever? I no, I have an internal monologue, but that's me talking to myself. But like actual um, thoughts and concepts that I understand and that I need to explain perhaps to someone else, they, they're in my head in the form of image. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, everyone is has like different circuits running around their heads. Yeah, it's strange to think how, how very different uh, mm. people, <laughs> we, we probably imagine that other people's perceptions are a lot closer to our own perception than they are, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's, I think, I realized not too long ago that I'm actually sort of neurodivergent. But because my entire family is neurodivergent, for a long time, it felt like just normal to us. Mm. Um, Because we we were all like that. Um, But like, I think it was at Flights of Foundry that I listened to a panel on neurodivergence and creativity. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. That too. That too. Ooh, that too. And I was like, hmm, I should look into this. Yeah. Um, but I think, honestly, like neurotypical is, is just, it's not really a thing. It's just that hmm. there's more of those than there are of, of other pe- right. people. Like neurodivergence. There are certain collections of features that are more common than not, but it's not. Yeah, some features um, are going to be yeah more prevalent than others. But I think there's no such thing as actual neurotypical. Mm. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe differences are less noticeable for them. But yeah, well, I do think I do think it does a disservice to a lot of people to assume that it's the norm. Yeah, like you're saying, because they'll just be like, well, you know, I don't. I don't behave in the ways that people say, you know, that are most commonly discussed uh, as being neurodivergent. And mm-hmm. so I must not be. And that's why it took it took a very specific conversation on this subject for you to <laughs> realize some things about yourself. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, I think it's it's more a spectrum, not so much as we we're all like unique in our own way. But for some people, the differences are just more noticeable and more influential on their day-to-day lives than 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 with other people but yeah that we could i could talk about that for another hour <laughs> so let's not go, let's not dive into that rabbit hole um did you have a poem for us to share yes yes this one this one actually will be there there will be a link to at least one thing well, there will be also a link to the to the poetry contest, which I want to plug again. Everybody remember mm-hmm. the, the speculative poetry contest? It opens up in June, so get your poems ready. But yeah, no, this is this is uh, one of those sonnets I mentioned toward the start that takes a fairy tale, in this case a European fairy tale, as its jumping off point. This was published in a Abyss and Apex in twenty eighteen. And could I, I, as I said, I've been trying to read more French. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to get more at ease with French as, as a reader, but I still am kind of uncomfortable with my pronunciation. So I could I ask you to uh, read the, the French bit, bit at the start? The, uh-huh, which is, which is a quote from 
the uh, original Beauty and the Beast. Okay. Yeah. So above the French quote, it says, with apologies to Gertrude Stein. Lui dit, la belle, voulez-vous être ma femme? Elle fut quelque thème sans répondre. Elle avait peur d'exciter la colère du monstre en le refusant. La belle et la bête, Jean-Marie le Prince de Beaumont. I asked for a rose, and your love was the price. That I did not know this is meaningless now. I will live out my days in your strange paradise, where my rose has become an unbreakable vow. I will not deny that you love me, you do. With a love like the sea, you have swallowed me whole. You have given me dresses and books, it is true. And all you have asked for in trade is my soul. I will keep to your gardens and dine in your hall. I will talk with you nightly and name you my friend. I will smile when you greet me and come when you call. I will be happy. I will pretend. But beg me to love you, and I must reply that a rose is a rose is a rose is a lie. Nice. I did like that one when you first sent me to li- sent me the link, and I love it as much in listening as I do in in looking. Well, it's no kibla, but it's something. <laughs> no, no, but I, I, I mean, I, I do have a soft spot for fairy tale retellings, and mm. I like this take on the Beauty and the Beast. So, uh, yeah, this one was actually like, does it come across as a very personal take? Because when I first wrote this, it was actually very personal, but it felt kind of freeing to write it as mm-hmm. beauty. And this in this kind of, this isn't my normal reading of Beauty and the Beast, by the way. I don't actually, like, I enjoy it as a romance story. I enjoy it as a yeah. story with a, with a truly happy ending. So even though this is kind of a dark take on it, mm-hmm. um, it, it was more because well, I was using it as as a frame to t- to discuss something that was very personal. And when one of my best friends read it, she said, "Wow, this was something. This was a very personal poem to you." And I was like, "Yeah, but hopefully, you know, this actually won't be immediately apparent because I'm writing it as beauty." Mm-hmm. So there was something freeing in that in writing as a character. It gives you an extra filter between you and the work that makes it less scary, um, probably. Um, but I think it works both ways it i wouldn't have assumed it was a very very close and personal thing automatically but i could i could see how it works that way mm. um but to me mostly what it does is is not so much turning the the myth of the original on its head as questioning if that's really what would have or what might have mm-hmm. happened. You know, it's not so much saying that the beauty and the beast is not true or not believable, but it, it's like that what if sort of question mm-hmm. that I really, really like in in retellings. Mm. Even if I do like the original, I mean, give me a castle full of books and I'm happy. <laughs> or um, are you pretending? <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I, I, I also enjoy reading darker spins on stories that are traditionally kind of framed as being mm-hmm. happy you know and uh there are also some some of the stories where 
even more so than with Beauty and the Beast, it's very easy to wind up taking that approach because you read it and aren't satisfied <laughs> with the way things turn out. Like there's somewhere it's like, well, this this isn't as happy as we're being told it is, you know, uh, which which isn't always the way I, I feel about Beauty and the Beast, especially not in, in you know, some of the lighter hearted uh, reworkings of it. But um, but it is the way I feel mm-hmm. about certain, you know, of the Grimm's fairy tales and other older stories where we're told, and they all lived happily ever after. And you think, but how? Everything was so messed up right now for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, I I very much, I think we tend to forget that because in contemporary versions, it all is happily ever after, and it all is peachy. But the original Grimm's fairy tales, the, the stories they collected, were mm. kind of gruesome. Like, take... Cinderella, for example, right now, she is this victim of of her stepmother and her two stepsisters. But in the original, the two stepsisters are as much a victim as she is because they ended up mutilating themselves to please mm. their mother's hopes of a future, basically. Um, and sort of, we tend to have forgotten that darkness, but it was there in the beginning, do you remember the like the dead mom tree? Yeah. In like the the older version uh of Cinderella. Yeah, so instead of the fairy godmother there was that tree that was possessed mm-hmm. by like her dead mother, her dead biological mother. There's this uh soap opera that was really popular when I was a kid from Argentina. I think it was. Mm-hmm. That was called Floricienta and it was like a modern Cinderella, but one of the things they kept from Cinderella was that she had a dead mom tree. Like there was a tree that oh, talked nice. to her and it was like her ghost mom. And I just thought that was a really interesting thing out of all the out of all the <laughs> elements to retain in a modern uh retelling because mm. they did away with a lot of it, but the the tree remained and I just thought that was interesting. So yeah, every time every time people uh do retellings of stories or engagements with these old stories. There's always something new. You wouldn't think it would be possible at this stage, but there's always things that you can, choices you can make that'll be surprising and new for at least some of the readers, I think. Yeah. Fair. At any rate, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Um, I had a lot of fun talking about everything from poetry to the side quest we went on. Um, thank you so much for sharing your poems with us. Um, I absolutely love them. Um, but I do have, I, I know I said it before, but I really do have one final question. Oh. <laughs> and that is where can our listeners find out more about yourself and your work? Um, well, for my work specifically, I do keep like a running list of what's posted up uh, online and also what's gone to print mm-hmm. in different places. So we can put a link to that page down in the description of the podcast. Uh, yeah, I guess that would be the main place to go. It's it's on a blog that's I've, that I've sadly neglected called Spec Potpourri. I hope I'll be able to put more reviews and things of poetry up on there at some point soon. Okay. Well, and if you want to come and hang out, you can always join the Discord server, um, oh, yeah. for which yeah. a link will also be included in the episode mm. notes. We would love to have you there. That was addressed to the listeners, right? Because I am yeah. there. Yes, yeah, you are I would there. also love to see them there. <laughs> yes, that'd be great. Into the Looking Glass is produced by me, Jasmine Arch. Our theme song is Wonderland by Alexander Nakarada. And this is me and Brittany saying bye-bye. Bye, everyone.